Welcome to our latest edition of The Third Wheel, a podcast from Herbert Smith Freehills on all things ESG. As ever, I'm joined today by my co-host, Mel Debenham, partner in our environment planning and communities practice. We're delighted today to welcome our expert Third Wheel guest, Olga Klimzak, who is an executive counsel in our employment and industrial relations team. Olga is very well versed in a timely topic for today, parliamentary inquiries. Before we get into the discussion, though, I did want to provide a content warning that today's podcast will include discussion of sexual harassment in the workplace. To begin, Olga, we like to start each episode with a personal reflection. So could you please tell us a little bit about why ESG is important to you? Thanks, Tim and Mel, and I'm very pleased to join you on the show. It's funny, when I think about what falls under the broad umbrella of ESG, there's so many issues which have an employment, industrial relations or safety component. So, for example, under E, there's workforce transition issues in relation to the shift to reduce emissions. Under G, we're seeing executive remuneration linked to ESG issues such as environmental targets or performance in relation to reducing sexual harassment. But by far the most employment-related issues fall under the S, such as human rights risks and modern slavery and supply chains, underpayments and wage theft, and sexual harassment, bullying and workplace culture. These workplace issues can bring challenges and risks, but there's also real opportunity to improve workplace culture, deepen inclusion and bring the best out of your people. So it's an exciting time to be an employment lawyer and help our clients on these journeys. These issues are of great importance to the clients I deal with and boards are really sitting up and taking notice and thinking how to respond to these issues. While these issues have been agitated for a long time, we appear to be going through a bit of a moment where there's this feeling in the community and workplaces that enough is enough, that these issues continue to affect the lives of many workers and their communities, and we're reaching a crisis or tipping point where workers, the public, community, consumers, shareholders, investors, they're all demanding more concrete action from businesses and governments alike. So I think ESG is important because it signals a real shift in viewing these matters, not just as HR issues, but issues which go fundamentally to the culture or heart of an organisation, to the social good that it brings to workers. And there's a real opportunity to drive and improve employee engagement and retention. Olga, and picking up on the point you made around these issues going to the heart of organisations, I guess there's no organisation that's more important to people um, than Parliament. And we have seen media headlines dominated by the inquiry into sexual harassment and bullying in Australia's Parliament, um, launched in response to the alleged rape of Brittany Higgins, a parliamentary staffer inside a minister's office. Sex Discrimination Commissioner Kate Jenkins' report has found sexist culture to be widespread in Australia's parliament. Brittany Higgins certainly put workplace culture and incident investigation processes into focus, not just for the parliament, for boards and management teams as well. Um, of the 28 recommendations made in the report, which do you think will have a flow-on impact for corporates particularly? Yeah, look, I think it's first important to acknowledge the individuals who came forward to tell their stories in this process. It really takes courage and in many cases it can be re-traumatising. So I think it's important that they're supported and for their voices to be heard. And there are some unusual features of Parliament as a workplace, but I think it's certainly true that there are also many similarities and aspects of the report which can apply more broadly to other workplaces. So I think if we split it into three areas, the drivers, the risk factors and the recommendations, 
First, in terms of the drivers of bullying and sexual harassment that were identified by the Commissioner, they included power imbalances, gender inequality, exclusion of minority groups and a lack of accountability. I think that these drivers apply equally to a lot of businesses. Secondly, in terms of the risk factors identified, they were a lack of clear standards, a culture of misconduct being normalised and of people being unwilling to intervene or speak out, a leadership deficit where the leader engaged in behaviour or inadequately responded to the misconduct, a work hard, play hard culture with travel away from home, the consumption of alcohol and the challenges of fly and fly out workforce with isolation and job insecurity. I think many of these risk factors can be seen in other fly and fly out workplaces, such as in the resources sector. And these drivers and risk factors are what the Commissioner then used to formulate the recommendations. And they were put within a framework for action with five pillars for the shift required to ensure a safe and respectful environment. And again, I think that these can be transposed to a corporate environment. But those pillars were first, leadership, strengthening institutional and individual leadership. So setting the tone from the top is key. And a lot of employers are doing this through direct engagement with staff on expectations, leadership messages, creating a safe reporting culture. And I think the recommendations under leadership are particularly important. Secondly, the pillar was around diversity, equality and inclusion. And some of the recommendations were around specific strategies, including targets to increase gender equality, diversity and inclusion among senior leaders, and then measurement of those targets and public reporting to monitor against progress. Now, there's also specific actions and recommendations around not only gender equality, but also the increase of representation of First Nations people, people from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds and people with disability and LGBTIQ plus people. So although the setting of targets is likely to be a controversial issue in Parliament, I think there's some real good learnings from these recommendations in terms of increasing that diversity at the top of organisations. Thirdly, there were systems to support performance. So this included setting up this office, which in, in terms of a HR equivalent in Parliament, as there's none there at the moment. I think many businesses already have a strong HR, but it's useful to refresh and consider these improvements that might be made. Fourth, was standards, reporting and accountability. So this was establishing an independent body to oversee reporting and the enforcement of the code of conduct. Again, many employers already have investigative and disciplinary process, but it's useful and timely to review them to ensure that they support a safe to report culture and accountability. And lastly was safety and wellbeing a proactive focus on safety. Many resources clients are also reviewing their alcohol policies, which was one of their recommendations out of the report um, and the risk factor there. Now, I think this report is really a continuation of the conversation that started in the rise of Me Too and Respect at Work. And many clients are taking a holistic, multifaceted and multidisciplinary approach. And the recommendations underlying these five pillars also adopt this holistic approach. The Commissioner said that the recommendations are mutually reinforcing and complementary and shouldn't be cherry-picked. So I think to enable a positive workplace culture free of sexual harassment and one that's truly inclusive, there's a lot of action and important recommendations in this report that will apply to workplaces more broadly. While there's not nearly new ground, I think it reinforces the framework um, approach to really tackle this challenging issue. It's interesting to hear you talk about that, Olga. Certainly a lot of the themes which you've flagged there are things which are very much on the board agenda and being focused on by boards and management at the moment. 
One of the areas which um, came up a couple of times um, in in um, your comments just then were around FIFO workers in the resources industry. And I understand that the WA Parliament has recently conducted an inquiry into sexual harassment against women in the FIFO industry. Um, obviously, it, it, it has the potential for some fairly damning findings, but hopefully, and, and in large part thanks to the bravery of people coming forward, sharing their experiences, um, hopefully it will lead to more companies reviewing their sexual harassment policies and procedures. What are you seeing in that space? What are corporates doing and, and what should they be thinking about there? Yeah, I think through this committee's inquiry, we can see that there's a number of focus areas and a number of actions that employers are taking. Um, and I think you can split that into sort of three broad categories. The first is around underreporting of sexual harassment. So a lot of employers and the committee's questioning was focused on this issue and its causes. What you know, why is there this underreporting? It's also seen in the I respect at work report where one in five people are reporting sexual harassment. And we're seeing employers really take steps to actively encourage this safe to report culture. One of the things that they're doing is taking a victim centric approach and ensuring that the processes and support provided is trauma informed. So there's a real shift to focus on the impacted person. I think the second issue that we're seeing is around reporting. So both internal reporting to the board as well as external reporting to safety regulators and police. Um, in terms of internal reporting, the committee was really interrogating the nature of board oversight. So this goes to your point, Tim, whether it's an action at each board item uh, meeting and how boards are approaching the task. Are they being proactive or are they being reactive? This is an area where we're seeing a lot of boards sitting up and taking interest. There was an equality across the board report that was published earlier this year also, which provided guidance for boards and emphasised greater transparency on reporting to shareholders. So one of the other things that we're seeing is shareholders being more active. So, for example, there was a shareholder resolution at Microsoft calling on the company to report annually on the effectiveness of its sexual harassment policies and procedures. I think that we can expect to see more pressure on boards to be proactive in this space. And one of the ways this may manifest is in greater regulation. So one of the areas to watch is around the potential introduction of a positive duty to eliminate sexual harassment. It's an area that the committee is considering. It's also an area of focus for the WA and Queensland Law Reform Commissions, which are also considering in separate inquiries their anti-discrimination legislation. And it also came up in the Senate inquiry flowing on from the proposed law reforms of the Respect at Work report. So that's a key area to watch. Um, in relation to external reporting, the committee appears to have been critical of the role and effectiveness of the safety regulator. So a key area that a lot of employers are considering is when are we going to report? What's the threshold for reporting to the regulator and how are we going to um, report externally? Um, one of the key areas is around guidance also that has been issued on these areas. So Safe Work Australia and other safety regulators, such as the Department of Mines, have issued this uh, various guidance on sexual harassment management. Um, and we're likely to see a continued increase um, by safety regulators, including more broadly in relation to mental health and psychosocial hazards more broadly. And I think the third area that we're seeing is some of the practical steps through background checks, the potential for a register of offenders, as it's been called, and a legislative investigative body. These have all been floated in the committee. 
So some of the themes we discussed earlier as well in the parliamentary inquiry around culture and insecure work have also featured and are real focuses, I think. This is an area where we're likely to continue to see scrutiny and from a range of stakeholders, and I think it will require continued proactive effort from businesses. Segwaying to another inquiry, though, and staying in WA for a bit longer, there's been a significant step change in Aboriginal cultural heritage management. So I think it's fair that we turn the tables on you, Mel, and I'm going to throw this one to you. The new laws aim to prevent another Dukan Gorge disaster, so where government approvals allowed the destruction of a 46,000-year-old rock shelter in the Pilbara region. There's much commentary on the problems and challenges with the regime, which will be different from the perspective of different stakeholders who interact with the legislation. Do you see this as having national impact? And what are the critical next steps? Tim, I think this is the first time we've had the tables turn. <laughs> Thank you, Olga. Um, and I'm glad you, you raised the parliamentary inquiry into Yukon Gorge as well as where our bill is at, um, because absolutely, um, this is a national, it's a national impact with the potential for um, national flow-on consequences. Um, if nothing else, it's really clear that the bill, which was tabled in Parliament a couple of weeks ago, um, has set a new benchmark for protection and management of Aboriginal cultural heritage. One of the most important aspects of the bill in that regard is this recognition of heritage values not being static. So information uh, that is gained over time can actually recognise new values or the significance of values. And um, the way that the bill deals with that is it can actually have an impact on the standing of authorisations and your ability to undertake activities that might impact heritage. So it, it's a really um, fundamental aspect of the bill which is different um, and something that is not um, widely um, contained in legislation managing Aboriginal cultural heritage around the grounds. Um, W, the WA Aboriginal Heritage Act is not contemporary. Um, I, I don't need to spend too much time talking about its deficiencies, but it's not just WA that's got lacking heritage legislation. There's review processes on foot in Tasmania and New South Wales, for example, and I wouldn't be surprised to see some of the themes of the parliamentary inquiry as well as uh, the bill here in WA finding their way into laws elsewhere. Um, we're probably going to see stronger national laws as well. Um, we've heard that call directly from the parliamentary inquiry. It also came up in the Samuels review of the EPBC Act, which um, deals with national and international heritage. Um, what that looks like remains to be seen. I'm pretty sure it will be impacted by what happens at the election next year. Um, but obviously, if we have stronger national laws, that will have uh, a national impact. One other thing I, I thought might be useful to um, observe is that Aboriginal heritage and managing disturbance isn't just a mining issue, um, and certainly that was the focus of the parliamentary inquiry, but the laws don't operate in that way. You know, it's really relevant for any business or sector that has a footprint, whether it's urban development or agriculture um, or government, in fact. Um, so, so much to think about. Um, in terms of critical next steps, uh, I'll try and distill that into two pithy observations. Um, the first, now more than ever, it is clear that having a legal right doesn't mean it's the right thing to do. 
organisations really need to have a think about this in terms of how they use land, um, the heritage and environmental values of that land, and also traditional owner viewpoints, um, which feeds into my second observation. To have a good understanding, you can't have that without engagement. Um, it, it's not a, a place that you can get to unilaterally. Um, and when I'm talking about engagement, it's more than consultation, right? So an openness to learn, consider and adapt from the status quo. Um, good quality engagement and relationship building is absolutely critical. And now's the time to be thinking about it. Um, what do those relationships look like? Um, if you're in WA with this new regime on the horizon, what can you do to foster relationships now um, to make compliance with the new regime more streamlined in the future? Thanks, Mel. Um, it, it, the, the point around engagement is an interesting one. I think it runs through quite a lot of the different ESG topics we've been looking at in this podcast series, the way in which engagement can flesh out some of these issues early on or define some of these issues for companies to respond to in a more nuanced, better way to help bridge the gap between the legal and the social expectation, which is um, a higher bar than the mere legal right. Yeah, that that's right. And I think, you know, not being lulled into false sense of security um, you know, with the blinkers on, knowing what you know without looking a little further, um, digging a little deeper on these issues, for mm. sure. Olga, turn, turning the tables back to you for the next question, um, and something squarely in your court, there's a couple of uh, sort of related inquiries that we wanted to ask you about as well. Um, in relation to underpayments and job security, uh, issues that have been exacerbated in some instances due to the pandemic. Could you tell us a little bit about what these might mean for employers? Yeah, that's right, Tim. Um, it's actually interesting that these two parliamentary inquiries have both been going on for some time. The underpayments inquiry was referred in 2019 and the job security inquiry was referred and appointed in 2020. Um, both have been granted numerous extensions to report and they're due to report now in February 2022. Um, that timing coincides with what's likely to be close to the next federal election. So I think we will see these issues play into the debate there with further proposed reforms possible. The Job Security Inquiry has actually already released three interim reports and they relate firstly to gig economy and on-demand platforms. Secondly, to government-funded work, including in the aged care and disability care sectors and universities. And thirdly, in relation to labour hire and contracting. Now, some of the recommendations that we've already seen are aimed at data collection and extending safety and workers' compensation and employment conditions to these workers. In particular, by updating employment legislation to take account of these new ways of working but also to bring these workers into the minimum safety net of employment-related conditions. There also are recommendations around seeking to use government procurement policies to drive policy change, so to prioritise organisations with permanently directly engaged workforces and increasing direct permanent employment and restricting casual and fixed-term work. A great number of businesses utilise labour hire, casuals and fixed-term employees as a way to supplement their workforce and meet labour peaks and troughs. This is especially the case with current labour supply issues exacerbated by the pandemic. 
But the concern from an ESG perspective is around exploitation of workers. One of the things that we've recently seen is this bill that's been introduced in federal parliament called the Same Job, Same Pay Bill, and it continues the Labor Party's previous policies on this issue, um, which is consistent with the recommendations of the third interim job security report. Essentially, the bill is aimed at ensuring that labour hire employees get the same pay as those directly paid by the principal or host. And I think this is an area to, to watch in terms of the progress of this bill. Probably requires quite a bit of amendment before it might be passed. Um, labour hire licensing regimes are also, I think, an area to watch. So that was a recommendation in the third interim job security report as well. And in Queensland and Victoria, such regimes were introduced around 2017 and 2018. And the Labor Party has supported the introduction of a national scheme, but we haven't seen much movement in this space, but I think this might be an area to watch in the next upcoming election. Um, the other issue, I think, in terms of underpayments, we'll see that the Fair Work Ombudsman has been very active in this space, including in relation to not-for-profit organisations as well as corporations. Now, Victoria introduced wage theft legislation, which became operative in the middle of this year, and I think that this is something that we might see at a federal level. Many employers are proactively auditing their payroll and checking for compliance, but this is certainly going to be an area of continued spotlight, both from regulators as well as shareholders and investors. Just on that, can you imagine some of the focus on underpayments flowing through to simplification of some of the industrial awards that we have? Do we dare to dream that things <laughs> might, might, might improve along those lines? Well, I think a lot of employers find the complexity of industrial instruments so difficult, and that is why we're seeing all of these cases. Uh, there's, I mean, when the award simplification process happened back in 2008, it reduced thousands, 2,000 awards down to 122. But in doing so, I think there is so much complexity. It's sort of a mishmash of all these different awards. And look, I think there's been an ongoing process since 2008, 2009, with constant reviews by the Fair Work Commission. Uh, look, they will only continue, but it is a difficult area. <laughs> Thanks, Olga. We, we appreciate your thoughts. Mel and I like to close out each of these episodes with an interesting or quirky fact from the world of ESG, and this week is no exception. This time, Mel's going to talk to some of the interesting stats and facts related to the recent COP26 conference in Glasgow. Take it away, Mel. Well, do, Tim. Yes, I'm still thinking about COP26. Um, and unsurprisingly for the subject matter of the conference, it was carbon neutral and had a big focus on sustainability. Um, so what does sustainability look like for a big international conference? And in the lead up to the holiday season here in Australia, it's also got me thinking about the choices we can make at the micro level to be more sustainable in our celebrations and events. So I'm looking to Glasgow for some inspiration. Um, First, single-use plastics. Despite being held in the midst of a global pandemic, there were no single-use drinking cups or water bottles with reusable cups and bottles provided to all participants. With so much waste associated with single-use items, reusable serveware beyond everyone's trusty coffee cup is slowly getting more traction. Here in WA, we actually have a pretty progressive position on single-use plastics. And we're tracking towards a full ban by the end of 2022. So come New Year's Day, plastic plates, bowls, cups, cutlery, stirrers, straws, thick plastic bags, 
um, polystyrene containers, the list goes on, will all be banned and there's a second tranche of items to follow at the end of 2022. Um, as a result, we're not only seeing more sustainable single-use items popping up, but also innovative businesses looking to eliminate single-use items entirely. I recently saw GoToCup providing reusable coffee cups and glasses and bowls and plates at an event. That was awesome. Um, so it's an example of what can be done. The other um, focus point for COP26 was on food miles. 95% um, of the conference catering was seasonal food from the UK and of that 80% from Scotland, um, which I think is an amazing achievement. The UN has provided a couple of interesting examples, including local Mara sea seaweed, I believe, being used as a salt substitute, um, berries being harvested in summer and preserved in honey. Um, it's both sustainable and delicious. Um, and also on the energy front, obviously priority being given to low carbon options, solar being the obvious one, um, but unlike Australia, the sun doesn't shine in quite the same way in Scotland. So hydro-treated vegetable oil was used instead of diesel, for example. Um, and every little bit counts, I think, when we're thinking about our own consumption. I, for one, have recycled wrapping paper and a Southwest Western Australian origin focused menu um, for our holiday events. Um, and I'm also going to be really mindful about when the aircon is on and off. Um, but hopefully um, what was achieved at Glasgow can provide a little inspiration to everyone in the lead up to Christmas and New Year. And on that note, another episode draws to an end. Um, Tim, I think it's also bye from us. Uh, for 2021. Not the third wheel, but um, the final episode of the third wheel is going to be take a takeover episode with two very special guests hosting the wheel. Um, so it's bye from us. Happy holidays. Happy holidays, everyone. Stay safe. Um, Tim and I look forward to more conversations with fascinating guests in 2022. In the spirit of reconciliation, Herbert Smith Freehills acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respect to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. You have been listening to a podcast brought to you by Herbert Smith Freehills. For more episodes, please go to our channel on iTunes or SoundCloud and visit our website herbertsmithfreehills.com for more insights relevant to your business.